0: And on that note, I also want to thank Bob today for letting me preach this sermon this morning. Um, Every commentator that I read said this is the most difficult passage in Galatians. So thank you for that. Appreciate that. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Galatians 4. That's where we're going to be at today. Galatians 4, starting verse 21. Uh, Before we get started, I just want to say that one of the things that I enjoy the most since I've been a believer is getting to share this good news of the gospel of grace with other people. And along the way, learned a few tools and and been exposed to certain things. And one of those things is Randy Pope's evangelism training called the Life Issue Books. It's four little small pamphlets that walk through the Gospel of John four times. And the first one, or each one, deals with a, a big question that someone that's investigating the claims of Christianity would ask. And the first one in that series is, is the Bible really God's Word? It's a pretty common question. Is it really God's Word? And he lays out in the beginning, before you go to the book of John, several reasons to consider if the Bible might actually be God's Word. The first one that he talks about is the incredible unity of the Word. If you think about it, it was written over the span of over 1,500 years by 40 different authors. And the, the lack of contradiction in Scripture over that amount of time and that many people that wrote it is amazing, the incredible unity of Scripture. Secondly is that it is historically accurate, that over time through archaeology and different ways, that the Bible has been proven over and over again through archaeological finds. For instance, the wall of Jericho. It seems like a crazy story in the Old Testament, right? March around it seven times and the walls fall. Well, they think they have found the wall of Jericho, in the city of Jericho, and all of the walls have fallen outward. That's not the way you siege and attack a city. The, fall, the walls would fall inward. But they have found this and see where it actually did fall outward. There's many other ways that archaeology has backed this up to prove it historically. And another thing that you can see from Scripture uh, is the amount of Old Testament prophecy that is prophesied about a Messiah there's over 300 specific times that it has been prophesied about a Messiah, and all of those have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Every single one of them. It's so astounding that that would happen that if you were to take just eight of those, the mathematic probability of someone fulfilling just eight is one times 10 to the 18th power. It's mathematically impossible for that to happen, yet we see from Scripture that all of those 300-plus prophecies about a Messiah were all fulfilled in Jesus. And I love talking about this and getting to the question of talking to someone to say, if the Bible has proven itself over and over and over and over again, what is the implication for you? That you can trust it, right? Right? If you were to come to me 99 times and ask me to do something for you, and I do it every single time, by the 100th time, I would think that you would trust me, that my character would say, I know that he's going to come through, but I'm a fallen person, and I will fail you, but scripture does not. And we know that we can take it to the bank, that we can trust that the Bible really is God's word. And it takes trust, right? It takes trust knowing. It takes faith to believe this to be true that the Bible really is God's word. But even within Scripture itself, we see several different places where Paul likes to use this phrase. That I remember stumbling upon it thinking, this is pretty amazing that he would say this a few times. And it makes your ears perk up when you hear it. And he would say, now this is a trustworthy saying. And then he says it. It's pretty interesting, right? I'm going to tell you something. Before I do, I want you to know that what I'm about to say is worthy of all of your trust. Here's an example of that. 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What is that, Paul? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That is a, worthy, that's a statement worthy of our trust. Or how about, how about 2 Timothy 2.11-13. 2, the saying is trustworthy... For if we have died with him, Jesus, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's a trustworthy saying. You can trust that because that is God and that is his promises. Now, what does that have to do with Galatians? Well, in Galatians 4, we're going to look at this, this thing called the promise. The promise. The sermon today is called The Power of Promise, and God has a promise, gospel-saturated promises because that's who he is in his character, and he holds out a promise for the Galatian church as believers and also for you as believers. He's talking to these Judaizers that the Galatians have heard the gospel, but I think the whole book of Galatians as Paul is Paul saying, we need to have a come-to-Jesus meeting, You've heard this gospel I've preached, but we need to have a come-to-Jesus meeting because you're tempted by someone else that's telling you something other than what I told you. I share the gospel with you, which means you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. Now, there's some other people coming in to try to muddy the waters and tell you that there's something else to this equation. You've got to do something a little bit more than that. Surely it's not all just by Jesus alone. I think you probably need to make sure you're circumcised. You probably need to make sure that you refrain from eating certain foods. That You probably need to observe certain rituals and, and ceremonies and religious holidays and those sort of things. And if you do that, then maybe you'll be right with God. God will love you so much. And Paul's saying, no, absolutely not. This law that you're trying to put yourselves under is complete opposite of Grace. You're either a doer or you are a done. There's no in between. And where do you fall? And Paul's saying, I hope that you see that you're a done. It's over. It's finished. You are no longer a doer. Forget the Home Depot saying, that where they say that you want to be a doer. It doesn't work. You're not a doer. It's all about what's been done. That is what he's trying to get us to see in Galatians here, not to subject ourselves to the law and obedience. We're tempted to submit ourselves to the law, but God's promises are worthy of our trust and our faith. So if you can, please stand with me. Let's read Galatians 4 together. Starting in verse 21 to the end of the chapter. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, these two women are two covenants. One is from Mount, from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, she is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, she corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Just as at the right time he who was born according to flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. May God bless the preaching and hearing of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative and trustworthy word let's pray together father we thank you for your word we thank you that this word is chocked full of promise from you and that reflects your character that you are a good father and you love us and you are so committed to us to be our god and for us to be your people that you willingly gave up your son for it so father be with us now we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. So, trusting, trusting in the gospel promises of God. There's three things I want us to see this morning. The first one is trust God's promises to pull you out of slavery. In these short ten verses, we see slavery talked about six times and freedom talked about five times. There's a sharp contrast of what it means to live free and what it means to live imprisoned. It it is a play on words. It is the Judaizers trying to claim that they're free because they obey the law. And Paul's saying, no, you are not free. When you submit yourself to live as though God will love you if you're obedient to the law, you are not free. But here's where the complexity of the story comes in. Paul refers back to the story in Genesis of Abraham and Sarah. Just to remind us of the story, Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children. It was physically impossible for them to do that. And yet God came and he visited Abraham and revealed himself to him. And he said, I promise you that you are going to have descendants as numerous as the stars. And that, that was impossible for it to happen, right? But he said it's going to happen. Sarah eventually gives Hagar, the, the slave, the maid of the house, to Abraham because they hadn't had a kid yet. And then Hagar births a son, and they name him Ishmael. And she's the slave woman in this story, as according to what Paul's saying here. And he was not born free. Born of natural procreation. That is who Isaac was and what he represents here. But then we see that because God made a promise, he was going to fulfill his promise. Even, even in the fact that Abraham and Sarah sinned, they didn't trust that the Lord was going to do it. They short-circuited that and then had a child with Hagar. But yet God still, in the midst of that, fulfilled his promise. A child of promise, and that is who Isaac is. We see this happening here in the real life of how we submit ourselves into this yoke of slavery that we call the law. So we think the law and submitting ourselves to it is going to make us right with God, and yet it doesn't. That's a doer. It's not a done. But living in freedom is risky. Trusting is risky to think that the Lord has actually really done all this work on our behalf. But there's another part too here where it talks about the born aspect. Born, bear, labor, it's used seven times in these verses. And it's talking about this whole aspect of being born again. I know there can be some baggage on the phrase of a born-again Christian, but it's here in Scripture Jesus even talks about it with Nicodemus, and he says to Nicodemus, not only are you born of a woman, but you're also born of the Spirit if you're a believer. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Supernaturally, through the promise of God, that all of us are born naturally, but in God's promise, some of us are born supernaturally. And God saves us. He changes our hearts. He comes into our lives. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us and literally cleans us up sprinkles our heart, and covered by the blood of Jesus. And that is a supernatural work of the Lord. That is a result of the promise. And in the same way that it was a promise for Abraham and his descendants, you being a believer, you are a part of that same promise. You are engrafted into the promise, promise all the way back in the time of Abraham. So how do we respond to this? I think verse 30 points to that, where Paul says, Cast out the slave woman and her son. Paul is in the allegory here, but he's trying to say, listen, this legalism that you think you're going to live by, that God's going to love you even more, trying to be a doer, you need to throw that away. There is nothing good that's going to come from that. You have to rest in the finished work of Jesus. There's nothing else that's going to make God be more pleased with you than resting under the blood of Jesus. But yet we feel this tension to be pulled back into that slavery of legalism, to be imprisoned into that We love that illusion of control. We love to know that maybe there's something we can do, right? But it reminds me of, uh, culturally speaking, of the incarceration that happens in our nation. I don't know if you know this, but recidivism, which is the, the, the rate of going back into incarceration after you've gotten out of jail. I was looking this up and realized it was very high, but the likelihood of someone going back into prison after they've been out within the first five years is 70%. It's 70% likelihood of going back. And that's a very high number. And with all the systemic problems in our nation, our backgrounds, our stories, and all the things that could be leading to that, I still think it's a picture into the window of our own soul with the Lord. We have the systemic world that works against us that wants to draw us into doing something for God. We have our own stories that make us think we need to do something to be significant in God's eyes. There's all kinds of magnets that want to pull us into this imprisonment to think, i got to do something more to add to this relational equation with God. And Paul's saying, no, you don't. You're a done. You're not a doer. You can rest in that. There is comfort and there is peace in that. So not only does God's promises pull you out of slavery, secondly... God's, trust God's promises to put assurance into your heart. To put assurance in your heart. You can see where this would go practically, that if you want to base your relationship with God on your performance, you will have no assurance whatsoever. If you think you're doing good, that is spiritual pride and smugness, and God is not pleased with that. Isaiah 64, 6, that even your most righteous acts are like filthy rags. There's no one who does good. No one seeks God. All turned away. In and of ourselves, that is who we are. But as the Holy Spirit works in us and changes us, it's his work that does this, that makes us new and different. And we can have assurance because it's done. But in verse 24, he's referring to covenants here. This is important for us to grasp this. There's a lot of allegory here. It's good and important to have right doctrine as you read scripture to know how to interpret it. We know that in Genesis 1, that God created Adam and Eve and they walked together and had a good relationship with each other in the garden. And God made a covenant with Adam and Eve. we call that a covenant of works. He so said, "You know what? I'm going to be in a relationship with you, and I'm going to be committed to you, and this relationship's going to work with blessings and curses, and you fulfill your part, and I'll fulfill my part. I'll be your God and you be my people. Just don't do one thing. Just don't eat the tree from the tree. And I mean, in my Bible, that is on the very second page of this long Bible. that's all it took for sin to enter the garden, and the covenant to be broken. And where it was dependent upon Adam and Eve to keep this covenant between them and God, this covenantal relationship, they broke it, and it was shattered, and it was shattered for all of us. And that's called a covenant of works. And that is what it was with Adam and Eve. But then it changed, and God created a new way and provided a new way to have a relationship with him, and we call that a covenant of grace. And that's what Paul is talking about here, that God enters into a covenant of grace with us. And this is such good news. Because if you're familiar with the story of Abraham, not only was he given the promise, but God also demonstrated it to us. He cut the animals in half and he went between the animals and said, I'm making a covenant with you, Abraham. I'm making a covenant that I'm committed to you to be your God and you to be my people. And if it doesn't work out and this covenant is broken, it will be, you will, but it would be because of me, but yet I won't. And if I ever do, may I be like these animals. This covenant will be unbroken. And it always has and it always will. And there's confidence and assurance that we can find in that, that we're in a covenant of grace, that it is God who swore by his name that we are in an indestructible union with Jesus. There's no sin too big that Jesus did not pay for. And that is the covenant of grace. And that is good news for you and me, that we are in this covenant. We're in the covenant of, of done, we're not in the covenant of dew. This Mount Sinai is Hagar, the old, uh, the old covenant that he's referring to here. Hagar is actually Arabic for rock and cliff. That's what they called Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai is actually outside of Israel. Je- uh, Paul is saying, "Look, your argument to, to the Judaizers, your argument here is not worth anything. Physically." Even Mount Sinai where you receive the law that you want to submit yourselves under, it's not even in the promised land. You were wondering. You were trying to figure it out. I gave, the, the law was given to you as a tutor, as a way to show you that you're condemned and you sin, only to lead you back to the covenant of grace. He flipped it on his head and said, you think that Christians are these, the Ishmael son. Really, Judaizers, you're the Ishmael. You're the one from the lineage thinking that you've got to prove something, but you're wrong. And why does he say that? Because God made a covenant with Abraham, with Adam and Eve, before the law ever came along. Why would we make our plumb line be our performance and how well we can obey the law when God had already done that? You can see it in the chapter before, chapter 3. If you want to look there with me, chapter 3, verse 15 through 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, which is Christ Jesus. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. You see this gospel promise there, that God's at work in a way that was way before the law. Our plumb line, our hope is not based on the law at all. Abraham, what does it say? That uh, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. He wasn't circumcised. There was no law for Mount Sinai. But he was found righteous in God's eyes because he trusted the Lord in his gospel promises. And it was credited to him as righteousness. That is good news for us. It reminds me of a story uh, I read earlier this year in a book by Simon Sinek called uh, The Infinite Game. And in there, he shares this story about the largest oil rig that was built in the late 90s uh, and the man that was tasked with the safety operations team was supposed to get it going, and this is such a dangerous job. The stakes are high, the pressure's high. We know about the BP oil spill and movies made about all these things. I mean, it's a hard job. And the guy that was leading this team to take on the biggest project ever, it was $1.5 billion just to build this thing, and him heading it up, he took a completely different approach. He took who he called the Roughnecks of Louisiana and brought them together. And they began to meet regularly and start to share their stories with each other. This is not something they did. And as they began to share stories with each other, they began to actually get to know each other. They began to get vulnerable with each other. There began to be some trust that was built over time that wasn't there before. And slowly but surely, the team actually became a team. And, you know, safety is so important, yet accidents happen. But because of their approach to take it this way, They decreased accidents by 84% of the industry standard. That's unheard of at the time, 84%. And they traced it back to what they called that trust comes before performance. Trust has to be built before performance happens. And that's what Paul is saying here as well. That's about interpersonal relationships, but it does reflect our relationship with the Lord. Are we vulnerable with the Lord to say, that's right, I get it wrong. I've sinned, I've messed up. And to know that you have a forgiving father that has paid for and atoned for your sin and my sin and always takes you back because you're in a covenant of grace. And because of that, it leads to obeying and living a life of gratitude that's actually in line with what he wants. And you're not living out of performance anymore. You're living out of gratitude because of the trust and faith that you put in Jesus and the work that he's done. And this is how it is, living in the done and not living in the doing. You can provide nothing to this relational equation, equation, and trust comes before performance. And with that, we have assurance. So not only does God's promises pull us out of slavery, not only does it give us assurance, but lastly, trust God's promises to give you hope in in your inheritance. Trust God's promises to give you hope in your inheritance. Verse 30, we see Paul talking about the inheritance with the free son that we have. We have this inheritance. We've been engrafted into the promise that we have an inheritance that's waiting on us. Verse 26 talks about the Jerusalem that is above. The Judaizers wanted to say, yeah, we have Jerusalem, look at us, we have credibility, everything's going great, with this great city. Paul's saying, no, that's so temporal, that's so here and now. I'm talking about something supernatural. There's a Jerusalem that is above, that's eventually going to come to earth when Jesus comes back. It's going to be way better than anything you've ever seen now. You have an inheritance that is waiting on you. There's a hope that you can have that is certain. And Paul's reiterating that, the Galatians, that no matter what happens in this life, know that you always, always have hope. Because you have an inheritance that's waiting for you in the Jerusalem that is above. He's also referring to the church, that this confined space of a city of Jerusalem seemed to be such a boast to the Judaizers. And Paul's saying, don't be mistaken. We're talking about the global, worldwide, continually expanding church. The body how it works together, that is the Jerusalem that is above, God's church. We see this again in chapter 3 of Galatians, verses 6 through 9. He says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We see the hope of our inheritance. We see this playing out with, like Abraham as it is with us. But don't be mistaken. Part of the reason that he says there's hope is because in verse 29, it says that the slave son will perse- persecuted the free son as it is now, And so it is even today. As believers, is another way Paul puts it, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, we're the pity of all men. And those that desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. That this life is going to be hard as believers. This world will work against us. That's the way that it is. We are persecuted as believers in some ways, but don't lose heart and don't lose hope because we have an inheritance It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 6, 8 through 10. It says, Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we're treated as impostors, yet are true, as unknown, yet as well known, as dying, and behold we live, as punished, yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, and as having nothing, yet possessing everything. You have an inheritance to give you hope. No matter what this world and this life brings, the Holy Spirit is living inside of you as a believer. That is a deposit that guarantees that inheritance. There is hope in that. It may be bittersweet, but we always have hope in Jesus. Do you feel that tension? Do you feel the tension of living with hope and feeling beat down in this world? remind you of one more thing going back to genesis 3 talking about a covenant of works and the covenant of grace you know in genesis adam and eve they blew it right and they sinned we call it the fall of man when they sinned they fell and because it was a covenant god had blessings and he had curses and when they sinned he began to in genesis 3 curse the serpent curse adam curse eve and when he's cursing the serpent, he says something that you could almost miss, and I don't want us to miss it because it's so important to the rest of Scripture. It's on the second page of my Bible, and yet it takes all the rest of the pages to unpack what he's saying right here in Genesis 3. He says, From her offspring will come one that will you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. From, at, from Eve... And her offspring, just like Abraham, his offspring, will come one that you think you're going to win and imprison this world and its people, but someone will set them free. Someone will ransom and release the captives of you and me, and that is Jesus. And we see that, him ratify, re-ratifying the covenant over and over and over again. What began there is a whisper in Genesis 3, it's carried on to, he does it with Noah, he does it with Abraham, he does it with Moses, he does it with David, and it crescendos with Jesus Christ, showing he's the ultimate mediator of this covenant of grace. That what he's doing and accomplishing on the cross fulfills and puts the stamp of it's done. You're in a covenant of grace, and God is committed to you, and he loves you, because it's based on the done, finished, to tetelestai record of Jesus Christ and not based on what you do. So let us not get confused and think we need to continue to submit ourselves to the law in order to prove something to God or to ourselves or to others. Put to rest in the grace that Jesus has, what he's accomplished and secured for you and for me, and to remember that we are co-heirs with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can confidently trust and believe in your gospel promises that we really are co-heirs with you, Jesus. We thank you that we are more than conquerors in you, Jesus. And we thank you for engrafting us into the good news of your gospel, that despite how much we've sinned against you, you continually forgive us and take us back because we're in a covenant of grace with you. And We thank you for this, and we pray it in your name. Amen.